welcome to episode 56 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your rough and tough host, Kristen Haas, aka Kiki Writes. In a stunning twist, season five delivers us not a two-parter, but a sort of three-parter with episode nine, V for Vashon the Son, episode 10, V for Vashon the Father, and episode 11, V for Vashon the Patriarch. Now here's the thing. While all three of these episodes go together, they're not like officially three-parters in that there's no to be continued and the only episode that actually gives us a recap of what came before is the final one. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to cover each episode as its own thing, as a standalone like I normally would. Uh, usually I just mash two-parters together, but this in this case I'm going to cover each of them individually and I'm going to try to do it as quickly as possible because I don't want this episode to be overly long. But instead of doing an episode wrap after I do the guest credits like I normally do, that is where it's going to be spoiler territory. I'm going to give you the ending of the first two episodes. You're going to have to know the ending of one episode to understand the events of the next episode because the next episode is just going to spoil everything for you. So once again, post guest credits, I'm going to give the endings of the first two episodes. And the final episode will be like a normal episode, and I will not give away the ending. But I encourage you to watch all three of these episodes. They are magnificent. And I also wanted to add, belatedly, because I had to put this in later, just a heads up if you are watching all three of the V for Vashon episodes, the last episode, V for Vashon, the patriarch, the ending could be very upsetting for some viewers. I won't be talking about it, obviously, because spoilers, but consider yourself warned. Also, please enjoy the dulcet tones of the rainstorm we currently have going and whatever the hell someone is watching in the next room. Anyway, let's go to Hawaii. I just looked up and there they were. They must have come up through the elevators from the garage. Wasn't there an attendant on duty? Well, not at that time. Between 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock in the morning, there isn't much traffic in the garage. Man goes on at 6. They must have known about that. They were out of here with a minute and a half to spare. They knew plenty. My name. He knew that. They knew I had the combination of the safe. Everything was working smooth, like they had it all planned out ahead of time. Then this one guy hit me. Yeah? Then what? Well, then one of the other fellows came over and he said something like, uh, what'd you do that for? Words like that. And? Did he say why he did it? He said, he said, it's an old family custom. Season 5, Episode 9, V for Vashon, The Sun, air date November 14th, 1972. Directed by Charles S. Dubin, this is his sixth of 24 episodes, and written by Alvin Zipinsley, this is his third of 12 episodes. In the lobby of a hotel, a group of pantyhosed men get off the elevator from the garage and stick up the cleaning crew and the night manager, Howard. When the manager attempts to hit the panic button, one of the men, clearly the leader, threatens him with a gun. The three robbers lead the three workers into a back room and make Howard open the safe. They then tie everyone up. However, the leader punches Howard in the face first, his ring leaving a V on his cheek. It's an old family custom. 
Steve is on the move, arriving at the burgled building, where Chin suggests that it's the mark of the Vachon. But after 40 years, it must be a joke. The cleaning crew IDs the robbers as three young kids, but one was wearing an expensive coat. Howard says the kids knew that between three and six, there was no elevator attendant on duty, and there wasn't much traffic in the garage where they took the elevator to the lobby. They knew Howard's name and that he knew the safe combination. When he tells Steve about the old family custom, it leads him right to Honoré Vachon. Honoré isn't thrilled about Steve showing up at breakfast, but agrees to meet him on the terrace when he finds out about the V. Steve asks about the whereabouts of Honoré's son Chris during the robbery. Chris comes in from swimming and says that he was in bed at the time. Steve asks to see his ring and then asks about the expensive sport coat that one of the robbers was wearing, which Chris denies owning. Steve asks to check Chris's closet, but Honoré denies the request. As soon as Steve leaves, Honoré asks Chris why he, what he did it for, but Chris denies he did anything. Honoré laments that this will be in the papers and dredge up the stories about Chris's grandfather. That was the past. They do business differently now, and this could jeopardize that. Chris swears that he had nothing to do with this, and Honoré takes his word. The robbers took less than what was available in the safe. It's like the job was more important than the loot. Dominic Vachon has retired from his dirty business of branding corpses with bees. Honoré has legitimate businesses and gives to charity. Chris wants for nothing. This might be an act of vengeance by a relative of one of Dominic's victims. Chris's friends, Lance and Stu, are afraid that Chris blew it with the V in the family tradition business, but Chris says he already set the cops straight. They want to know why Chris did it. They're in it for the money. Chris is in it for a different reason. I think it's daddy issues. Ben, Dan, and Chin go to several shops looking for the stolen items that would have been fenced. Meanwhile, Chris and his friends set up their next heist, which is next to the first hotel heist. This time when the clerk got hit, his same expensive sport coat slipped open and he saw the letters L-O-W, which leads Dano to Lo Wu Sing's garment shop, where he gets a list of people who bought that type of coat. Honoré hears that there's another robbery and calls his right-hand man, Tasaki. Tasaki gets a list of the stolen items from the hotel safe, giving the night clerk a thank you envelope. Tasaki goes to the shops looking for the items on the list. The shopkeepers are more cooperative for Mr. Vachon. One has the trinkets on the list and Tasaki pays for them. Tasaki tells Honoré that the shopkeeper can't give much of a description besides young and well-dressed. Honoré suspects that the robber will use the same fence and Tosaki will be there. Five-O searches the apartment of one of the men on the list who happens to drive an expensive white car, but there is no car like that registered to N. Douglas. Tosaki finds Chris at the fence and Tosaki insists he go home. Honoré is not thrilled to find out that Chris is not only thieving, but he is also the brains of the outfit. Where did he learn this? Chris said he learned it from watching you, Dad. And he has a bigger caper planned. Honoré forbids him from this bullshit, but Chris asks if Honoré is going to put a hit out on him like Grandpa used to do his enemies. Of course not. Why is Chris doing this? Because he has a hypocrite for a father. And a lot of daddy issues. So many daddy issues. Honoré visits his father Dominic about Chris. Dominic says that Chris just wants some excitement. Honoré says he'll get the excitement of jail. Dominic says Vachans don't go to jail. They have people on their payroll for that. Who cares about some trinkets? Well, Steve McGarrett, because there's a Vachon and all the old stories are coming up. Dominic tells Honoré to tell Chris to stop, which he did. Dominic asks if he hit him, and he said no. 
Chris doesn't respect him. The children today don't respect their parents. Dominic tells Honoré that he won't talk to Chris. He has to make Chris find respect for him again himself. Ben finds the sport coat in the closet of in Douglas's apartment. Inside the pocket, they find a cigarette lighter from the missing items list. And the fingerprints on it match Chris Vachon. This will be the first time they've had something on the Vachons for 30 years. Bring him in. But of course, Honoré immediately bails him out. We like to give women a lot of shit for having daddy issues, but Chris Vachon truly bests them all with his daddy issues. Here's a little history of the Vachon crime family. Dominic Vachon came over from France and decided to create a criminal enterprise in Hawaii. And he did a wonderful job of this. The thing is, is that he was rather ruthless, and a lot of people ended up as corpses hanging upside down in back rooms with V's branded into them, hence the family tradition. But he's ostensibly retired from this venture. Now his son, Honoré, which I'm going to continually mispronounce his name multiple different ways, I'm sorry, I'm no good with my French. And every time I look at it, my brain reads it a different way. My brain is a traitor when it comes to pronouncing names. We all know this. So Honoré was brought up in this family business. However, he made a break from it and moved towards more legitimate enterprises. So as of right now, I believe at one point Chris says the only crime he does is cheating on his taxes. So he does legitimate businessman crimes. And he doesn't want those old stories coming up. Now Christopher was not brought up in the family business. And it sounds like... Honoré was raised with a lot of uh, tough love to be nice. It sounds like he had a very harsh upbringing with his father. His father was determined to make him very tough. So Honoré's response to this was to raise his son, quote, better. And therefore, Chris has never had to work for anything. Chris has never experienced discomfort or disappointment. Chris can have anything he wants. He lives in luxury, he has an allowance, he has access to cars, to whatever he wants. So basically, he's an entitled spoiled brat. However, Chris is wise to the stories of his grandfather. And for whatever reason, he's decided that I'm guessing we're just focusing on this through the lens of the late 60s, early 70s young person rebellions of how they don't respect their parents. Chris has decided that instead of his father experiencing character growth by moving into legitimate business, he's actually a hypocrite. And he has decided that he is going to rope two of his friends, Lance and Stu, into these hotel heists. That he wants to have a criminal empire like his granddaddy. Well, the problem with that is, is that if you've never had to work for anything in your life and you're used to not getting in trouble and you're used to getting your way, that bit of arrogance breeds stupidity. And that's what you see on display here. Dominic Vichon did not create a criminal empire by being stupid. He is, I don't think, an arrogant man because he has earned his right to ego. He's earned that. Christopher hasn't. Christopher's a brat. And so the real motive behind all of these hotel heists is Chris is trying to thumb his nose at daddy. 
because as we have established multiple times, men would rather commit felonies than go to therapy. Now, the heists are actually fairly well planned out in the sense that we have established from what the the crew's cleaning crew and the night manager said they knew when the attend the elevator attendant was going to be off duty they knew when there was less traffic in the garage they knew that the night manager was the one who knew the combination to the safe all of that and they come in and surprise these three employees and they're wearing pantyhose on their head and truly that is a lost art you just don't see that very often anymore and that's a shame because it's a magnificent look. They go in and they and they rob this safe. And obviously it's a hotel safe. So people are just um, storing their valuables in there. And they just take some of them. They don't even take all of them. The total safe, whatever is worth, all the valuables in the safe. They make a point of that. Christopher ends up hitting the night manager in the face and leaving the V mark from his ring on this guy's face. And... As the maid says that one of them was wearing a very expensive sport coat and she knows what an expensive sport coat looks like because she handles so many of them in this hotel. So you have two identifying aspects of these criminals. So so the you see right from the very beginning Chris's arrogance. And that continues when McGarrett goes to the Vachons and asks Chris about where he was. There's still a certain amount of arrogance. I think you're going to discover, Mr. McGarrett, that my son is in no way connected with this affair. Which affair? Where were you about 6 a.m.? In bed. Any way to prove it? I wish there was. What's this all about? You want to clue me in? The Regent Hotel in Waikiki was held up. Don't we own that? We have an interest in it. You own a ring with a V on it? Sure. May I see it? Certainly. You left-handed? No. Take it off, please. Looking for bloodstains? Why should I be looking for bloodstains? Don't cops always look for bloodstains? So now you know that the reason why these robbers knew everything about how the hotel works is that the Vachons own part of it. So of course they would. Chris... With a little bit of Honoré's help, deters Steve and Five O because they won't let them search for the sport coat. And Chris, in that moment, swears to his father that no, he was asleep. The reason why he was wearing his ring on his other hand was because he hurt his finger. He did not do this. He swears he did not do this. And Honoré takes his son's word for it. The next hotel gets hit and Chris makes a point of hitting the hotel next door to the original one. Because no one's going to expect it. The police aren't going to expect someone would be that bold. And Steve says, it seems like someone is making sport of this. And they are. Because we establish very quickly that while Lance and Stu are in it from the money, Chris calls what they earn from their heist bus fare. So it's not about the money for him. It's about the daddy issues. But this robbery, he wears the same sport coat. We get the ID of the shop where these sport coats are made and Danny goes and talks to them and gets that list, which leads them to the apartment, which where they find the sport coat. And from the apartment manager, we know that the person who's renting that apartment drives a very expensive car. And 5 finds the lighter in the sport coat pocket that was from one of the robberies, and it's got Chris Vachon's fingerprint on it. So 
they make quick work of tracking down Christopher Sean and tying him to these robberies because he's arrogant and arrogance breeds stupidity. Meanwhile, Honoré also tracks down the thief because he is a legitimate businessman. He has business deals going. He does not need this shit back in the news. So he has his right-hand man, Tosaki. And let me tell you, we all need a Tosaki in our lives. I need a Tosaki in my life. Someone to go and do things for me and have complete devotion and loyalty. I need that. I have no doubt that Tosaki is well taken care of and well paid. And he should be. He is excellent at his job. Tosaki goes looking for the items that were stolen at the different shops, just like 5-0 did. The difference is, is that they're a little more cooperative with Vashon representatives than they are law enforcement representatives. And one shopkeeper comes up with the stolen items for which Tosaki pays for and buys them all. He reports back to Honoré, who sends him on a stakeout for that fence because he knows that the thief will use him again. And he is right, and there is Christopher. And that is when we get the scene of Christopher basically saying, yes, I'm doing this because I have terrible daddy issues. There's nothing you can do about it because I'm 21 years old and you have no power over me. You have no, I have no respect for you and you have no power over me. And Honoré goes to his father about this. He's looking for counsel and he wants Dominic to talk to the boy because Dominic still has his respect. And it's a great father-son scene in that he tells Dominic what's going on with Chris, that Chris is committing these robberies. And Dominic says, well, did you tell him to stop? And he says, yes, he, and he won't. And he says, well, did you hit him? Father, the boy is 21. And you're 50, so show me your father disrespect and you'll feel my fist in your face. Now, here's the thing. I am not an advocate for hitting your children in 99% of circumstances. I don't believe it teaches them anything. I believe in disciplining your children but not necessarily through violence. However, I am willing to make exceptions in certain cases, and I am kind of on Dominic's side about this. Maybe if you knocked that entitled little shit down because he is a grown man now, things might change. As I like to say, violence isn't the answer, but sometimes it's the only language some people speak. But ultimately, Dominic does not acquiesce to Honoré's request. He is not going to do Honoré's job for him. It's Honoré's responsibility to make this boy respect him. So 5-0 ends up arresting Christopher. Instead of taking this opportunity to let his son go to jail and experience some prison, experience true consequences for his actions, Honoré bails him out. And he doesn't just bail him out because Chris is like, well, you better get the lawyers. Vashans don't go to jail. Grandpa says it all the time. So you better get some lawyers. And Honoré kind of schools him on this. He's like, it takes more than lawyers. Lawyers are window dressing. And he then proceeds to fix this entire case. Not only does he get the lawyers that you need, but he sends out, sends out Tosaki. He pays off Chris's friends and sends them to the mainland, mainland with money. $5,000 a piece. He sends Lo Wu Sing back to Taiwan to take care of his ailing father. Another witness, their daughter became mysteriously ill on the mainland and he had to leave. The hotel maid suddenly isn't 
for sure. If that was the sport coat, then the apartment manager who rented it to Chris, he's not sure if that is the guy who rented the apartment because he doesn't see so good. I mean, he just had it fixed straight up, straight down. Masterful, truly. For all of Honoré's legitimate business dealings, he doesn't forget where he came from. He knows how this works. So Christopher ends up being found not guilty, basically due to insufficient evidence, and Dominic kind of gloats about that to Steve. And when Christopher takes his turn to gloat, Dominic backhands the shit out of this boy. Well-deserved. So much for the pigs, huh, Grandpa? Pigs? There are pigs worth ten times your brain. You are a fool. Money was spent and lives disarranged to save you from your own foolishness. Do you hear McGarrett say next time he'll be smarter? Take it to heart. He will be smarter, and you had better be smarter, because no more money will be spent on you, you, you stupid boy. You listen to your father. He's never been arrested by, by these pigs you're so contemptuous of. Yes, Father. My son was brought up better than yours. This one, I don't see any scars. My son has scars. Anyone with any sense would have taken that as the warning that it was and called off their big heist, but not Christopher. No, now he's going to prove not only to his daddy, but also to his granddaddy. What a mastermind he is. How good he is at this. He's going to stick it to both of them. Great. And Steve and Five-O naturally know that this isn't the end of this. They end up getting a federal warrant, a surveillance warrant. So they're able to overhear Christopher's plans. He is found Lance and Stu, returned them to the islands, and together the three of them are going to rob a hotel convention. I'm sure nothing will go wrong. You know what's totally right? This guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. Chris Vachon was played by Robert Drevis. He was Brad Robinson on Our Private World. He also appeared in episodes of Route 66, East Side, West Side, The Defenders, 12 O'Clock High, The Wild Wild West, The Fugitive, Bonanza, The Bold Ones, The Protectors, The FBI, Marcus Welby, MD, The Streets of San Francisco, and Canon. And he appeared in the movies God Told Me To, Road Movie, Where It's At, and Cool Hand Luke. Honoré Vachon was played by the wonderful Harold Gould. This is his first of four episodes. He has 206 credits going back to 1951, listed on IMDb. He's probably best known as Miles Weber on The Golden Girls and Golden Palace. He was also Martin Morgenstern on Rhoda and The Mary Tyler Moore Show. He was Harry Danton on The Feather and Father Gang. Jonah Foote on Foot in the Door. Ben Sprague on Spencer and David Ross on Park Place. 
He also appeared in episodes of Kane's 100, The Donna Reed Show, Dennis the Menace, Route 66, The Twilight Zone, The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, The Man from Uncle, Perry Mason, Mr. Ad, Dr. Kildare, Hazel, The Virginian, The Farmer's Daughter, That Girl, Get Smart, The Green Hornet, The Fugitive, The Invaders, The Flying Nun, The Wild Wild West, Big Valley, Mission Impossible, I Dream of Genie, Hogan's Heroes, Columbo, Mod Squad, Mannix, The Partridge Family, Ironside, The New Dick Van Dyke Show, Lots of Luck, Dirty Sally, Gunsmoke, Cannon, the Rookies, Family, Soap, The Love Boat, The Rockford Files, The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo, Lou Grant, Webster, St. Elsewhere, Trapper John M.D., L.A. Law, Night Court, Empty Nest, Dinosaurs, Dear John, Lois and Clark, Felicity, Touched by an Angel, Cold Case, and Nip Tuck. He appeared in the movies Freaky Friday, the 2003 version, The Master of Disguise, Stuart Little, My Giant, Playing for Keeps, Gus, the Sting, Silent Movie, Love and Death, Project X from 1968, Harper, The Spy with My Face, and The Yellow Canary. And he appeared in the TV movies, The Cliff, A Death of Innocence, Murdoch's Gang, How to Break Up a Happy Divorce, Better Late Than Never, Aunt Mary, Help Wanted, Nail, The Red Light Sting, and For Hope. Dominic Vachon was played by Luther Adler. This is his first of four episodes. He was Dr. Bernard Actman on The Psychiatrist. He also appeared in episodes of Crossroads, Studio One, Playhouse 90, The Twilight Zone, The Islanders, The Untouchables, Route 66, The Naked City, Ben Casey, 77 Sunset Strip, Mission Impossible, Search, Heck Ramsey, and The Streets of San Francisco. He appeared in the movies Absence of Malice, Voyage of the Damned, Murph the Surf, Crazy Joe, The Brotherhood, The Last Angry Man, Hot Blood, M, and House of Strangers. And he appeared in the TV movie, Chelsea D.H.O. Tosaki was played by Kwan Hai Lim. This is his seventh of 25 episodes. The Night Clerk was played by Nelson Fair. This is his second of nine episodes. He was also in Tiger by the Tail. Drew was played by John Stalker. This is his fourth of 15 episodes. Stu was played by Christopher Harris. He also appeared in episodes of Dr. Kildare, Ben Casey, and the Time Tunnel. Lance was played by Ricky Kelman. He was Randy Town on The Dennis O'Keefe Show. And Tommy McRoberts on Our Man Higgins. He also appeared in episodes of Bachelor Father, The 1950s Dragnet, 77 Sunset Strip, Bonanza, The Donna Reed Show, Dr. Kildare, Gunsmoke, The Twilight Zone, Lassie, The Bold Ones, The New Doctors, My Three Sons, Family Affair, Medical Center, Room 222, Ironside, and Here's Lucy. He also appeared in the movies The First Time, Critics' Choice, and Step Down to Terror. Marguerite Vachon was played by Elizabeth Cole. This is her first of two episodes. She also appeared in episodes of Hawkeye and the Last of the Mohicans, Encounter, Playdate, and Mrs. Columbo. She appeared in the movie Hawaii, and she appeared in the TV movies Mr. Scrooge and The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The Chambermaid was played by Elsie DeMello. This is her second of two episodes. She was also in the episode Air Cargo, Dial for Murder. Lo Wu Sing was played by Galen Kim. This is his fifth of 11 episodes. The Apartment Manager was played by Arthur He. This is his seventh of nine episodes. Frank Heller was played by Jack Morris. This is his first of two episodes. 
He was also in an episode of Operation Mystery and appeared in the movie The Green Slime. Besseride was played by Moki Palacio. This is his fifth of six episodes. Quan was played by Wesley Sakai. This is his only credit. And in an uncredited role, one of the court spectators was played by John A. Graciano. This is his first of five episodes. It should come as no surprise that Chris's big heist goes totally pear-shaped because Five O knows about said heist. So as the boys start doing their robberies, Five O shows up and intervenes. What ensues is McGarrett chasing Chris through the hotel, and Chris takes a few shots at him because, of course, he's armed. Steve chases him into the stairwell. Chris again stops to shoot at him, and this time Steve returns fire and hits Chris in the gut. The injury is not immediately fatal, and he's able to make it to his car and drive home with Five-O in pursuit. And he very dramatically coasts to a stop into the driveway, falls onto the horn. His father comes running out, opens the door. He, he falls into his father's arms and dies. Steve and Daniel roll up just in time to witness this dramatic scene, which gets even more dramatic when Honoré accuses Steve of killing his son, and Steve fires back with, No, you killed him, you and your father, with your business. Killed him before he was even born. Now, here's the thing. That's a little harsh, I feel. It's not Christopher's fault that his father and grandfather were engaged in criminal activities. It is 100% his fault that he did not allow his child to incur any consequences for his actions and therefore decided this sort of behavior was a good idea. So I think Steve is being just a little bit harsh. This, of course, means Honoré swears to avenge his terrible son's death. Which leads us to the next episode. Garrett dies. We don't expect understanding or respect from the police. We do expect common decency. A court might consider this a threat against my life. Picture of a grave. We both know whose grave it is, don't we, Vachon? You have anything to add? Place me under arrest. Or release me. Now. I'd just as soon not be in the same room with my son's murderer. I am not your son's murderer. He was apprehended in the act of trying to rob a hotel. He attempted to kill me with three shots at point-blank range and was wounded. Now, he'd be alive today if he'd surrendered when ordered instead of trying to escape. No, Vashon, I am not your son's murderer. I say you are. I'm on notice. Is that it? There's a contract out on me. Episode 10, View for Vashon, the Father, air date November 21st, 1972. Directed by Charles S. Dubin, this is his seventh of 24 episodes and written by Alvin Sapinsley. This is his fourth of 12 episodes. The Vashons bury Chris in a good Catholic funeral. Dominic sends Marguerite and the girls to the car and thanks the priest, dismissing him. 
Against Honoré's wishes, Dominic insists that Tosaki place a replica McGarrett headstone in front of Chris's and take a picture to send to Steve. First he must wonder, then he must know, then he must die. It's the way the Vachans do things. Steve receives the message, and Hafaivo immediately heads out to the cemetery right to Chris Vachon's grave. This trip is followed by one to see Honoré at his home, where he shows him the picture, which could be interpreted as a threat. Honoré says that he can either arrest him or let him go, but he doesn't want to be in the same room as his son's murderer. Steve points out that legally, he isn't Chris's murderer, and if Honoré is going to put a hit out on him, then he won't stop until he puts him away for life. Steve leaves and Honoré calls Dominic. Can he take care of this now? Steve discusses the plan with Five-O. If they're going to nail Honoré, Steve is going to have to make himself enough of a target to draw him in and get the evidence because they don't have enough for a federal court order to surveil him. Chin delivers a list of hitmen that have worked for the Vachans. Steve needs to know what to look for. Meanwhile, Tasaki apparently meets with one of those hitmen, Peter Macros. Steve leaves work, checking his car over for any kind of bombs or explosives. Finding some cording and a hair, he runs to alert some uniforms, telling them to call the bomb squad and clear the first three floors of the building. The bomb squad safely removes the bomb from under the hood of Steve's car as 5-0 watches from a safe distance. And I also want to point out real quick, the bomb squad guy is severely underdressed. They basically gave him a shitty Kevlar vest and a helmet and said good luck. Once the all-clear is given, Steve checks out his car and then tells Chin to have the car towed and have Che go over it. As the car is being prepared for tow, Steve realizes that his driver's side door should have been locked. A second bomb hidden in the door goes off, mortally wounding the tow guy. Now they have enough to get a court order. Vishan returns from his morning swim and catches the sight of a glint across the way. Through binoculars, he sees a long-distance sound dish that says he's under surveillance. He attempts to call for the correct time, hearing the click of someone listening. Thoroughly paranoid, he scours the living room for bugs. Tasaki arrives, and Honore shushes him. Through mime, he lets Tasaki know that they're being listened to. Tasaki writes on a pad that the bomb failed. Someone died, but it wasn't McGarrett. Honore responds to pay the bomb man. Jay finds trace of an explosive only made in Europe, so they need to concentrate on the European bomb guys. The bomb under the hood was meant to be found. The door bomb wasn't. Honoré is paying for the best. Steve decides to alert Interpol to help keep an eye on these guys, but 5 ends up finding Macros dead later. Dominic reads the news and tries to call Honoré, but Honoré won't answer the phone. His wife Marguerite does, though, and tells Honoré that Dominic is on the phone. Running the water to muffle their conversation, Honoré tells her to tell Dominic that he's out and he'll call him back soon. He then has Tasaki deliver a message to Dominic that Honoré will meet him at 3 o'clock. Surveillance watches Dominic and Honoré meet and go for a walk by the ocean. They can't hear the conversation thanks to the waves. Meanwhile, Honoré isn't thrilled with how this vengeance thing is going. McGarrett is sweating, but Honoré's hands are tied. He can't handle any business while being watched. Macros was the best on the island, and look how that worked out. Dominic says they need to bring in someone clean and smart. He tells Honoré to get in touch with Philidor. He'll know someone, and he owes Dominic a favor. Give a letter to Marguerite to give to the sexton to mail the next time she goes to church, and Philidor will send a reply the same way. Church is sacred, but there's nothing more sacred than killing McGarrett. 
Steve realizes there's plenty of windows across the street for a sniper. He tells Chin to keep an eye out for anyone on their list of sharpshooters renting a room. Ben reviews a list of top hitmen, but none of them are moving. All the surveillance isn't revealing anything but running water, garbage disposals, vacuums, and waves. They need a lead soon. Honoré receives Philidor's response via Marguerite's prayer book. He directs him to a man named Haywood, who arrives on Oahu and takes a cab to a phone booth. Tasaki watches him as he places his car to Tasaki's car phone. They go through a wrong number ruse. Once they hang up, Tosaki's car swings around and picks him up. Honore is casually reading on his deck by the beach as a helicopter comes flying along. In a mad dash, he runs for the chopper, leaving surveillance behind. He meets with Haywood, who says that he'll need two weeks to do the job properly, but that's too long for Honore. He wants it done in a week. The final compromise is ten days and ten thousand dollars extra. They won't meet again as Haywood works best alone. Honoré will know the job is done when it's broadcast on the news, and then Honoré can send the rest of the money to Haywood's Swiss bank account. The fuse has officially been lit. Welcome to Vengeance. As we discussed at the end of the previous episode, Honoré has decided that he is going to avenge his terrible son's death, even though the kid had it coming in many respects. The interesting thing about this is that Honoré is very much so a businessman now, a legitimate businessman, and he wants to take care of this in a businessman-like fashion. Let's get the hitman, let's get McGarrett dead, and let's be done with this. He wants it done now, post-haste, boom, boom, boom. Dominic, on the other hand, is of the old school. He is traditional, and he has style. And so he wants to send McGarrett the message to let him know, to let him stew, and then murder him. He likes a little psychological torture, in with his vengeance. And so he has Tasaki put up the mock McGarrett tombstone over Christopher's tombstone. Which, by the way, tombstones typically are not present at funerals because they take a minute to make. Most people are buried within three days to a week of their deaths, so... They kind of have, like, just placeholders until the tombstone is delivered, but no, not the Vachons. They probably had that shit ready. Anyway, they put up this fake McGarrett tombstone and then take a picture and send it to McGarrett. They have to send the message. This is the Vachon way. We send messages. What's interesting is that prior to this, Dominic dismisses the priest, and he also tells the girls to take their mother to the car. Honoré has a t one terrible son two apparently not terrible daughters, and a wife, Marguerite. Honoré later makes a point of not wanting to include Marguerite in the business. She doesn't, he doesn't like to keep her in the business. Now, it's obvious that Christopher knows something of the past, but you have to wonder just how much Marguerite does know. He doesn't like to involve her in the business, but that doesn't mean she doesn't know things about the business. And I don't know how much the daughters know about the business. It, it's kind of like, this is man's work. The women are not to trouble themselves. The women are pretty much just plot points and props. Anyway, McGarrett gets this message, and he gets the message with clarity. He understands that this is a threat on his life, and he goes to address this with Honoré, who doesn't wish to be in the same room as his son's killer. McGarrett makes sure to point out this is a case of self-defense. Christopher was killed during the commission of a felony. He attempted to shoot a police officer. The police officer retaliated. By the book, police-involved shooting. And honestly, Honoré could have saved himself so much trouble if he just 
took responsibility for his own actions of raising a terrible son and been done with it, grieved and moved on. But no, we need vengeance. So Steve is put on alert. What he wants, he gets. Yeah. And what he wants most right now is my head, which I mean to keep. But you're going to stay in the open. Yeah, and take the proper precautions. The trouble with decoys, a lot of times they end up shot with the ducks. I don't exactly relish the idea of going fishing with myself as bait. But if we want to build a big enough case against Fashion to get in there and clean that family cesspool out once and for all, I've got to be enough target to make him show his hand a little more. Then we better bug him right down to his cufflinks. Total surveillance. We've got to know what cards he's holding before he plays them. Yeah, and it means a federal court order. And to get one, we need more proof of Vashon's intention than a snapshot of an open grave. Gretchen. You're a four-hit man who worked for Vashon before. Whereabouts? We're checking that now. I thought you'd like a readout of the MOs in the meanwhile. Yeah. Yeah, let's see what I've got to watch out for. So Steve has to walk a very fine line here in that he is cautious, but still going through his daily business. And in the course of that, taking of the precautions, he finds traces of the explosive. He finds the cording in the hair that lets him know this car is rigged. Because after McGarrett's visit, Honoré asked Dominic's permission to take care of this and sent Tasaki to hire Peter Macros. And Macros rigged his car in a very specific way. He made it obvious for the bomb under the hood to be found, but then rigged the driver's side door with another bomb that was better hidden. So what was supposed to happen was Steve would have found one bomb and then been killed by the other bomb, thinking everything had been taken care of. They did not bank on the fact that Steve would A, recognize that his driver's side door should have been locked, and B, that the tow truck guy would set it off and end up being killed instead. R.I.P. Tow Truck Guy, thank you for your service. So this is considered enough to get the federal court order for the surveillance. Now, Honoré didn't get to where he was by being stupid. He has that going for him, unlike his arrogant, entitled son. So when he's out swimming, he comes back from swimming up on his little deck there. He catches a glint of something. He does not dismiss this. He checks it out with binoculars, sees that it's a long-range listening device, and understands he's under surveillance. And he, I love that his immediate thought is to come to the house, check the phone. Phone has obviously been bugged because he can hear somebody else hang up after the phone call has been completed, which he just calls for the time. I don't think you do that anymore, but when I was growing up as a kid, we would call for time and temp, like, multiple times a day. Anyway... He starts searching his house for bugs and it looks hilarious as he's like moving couch cushions and, and checking lamps and all of this stuff. And Tasaki arrives with the intention of telling him that Macros failed. But Honore catches him and through mime and through written notes convey the fact that the Macros bomb failed, McGarrett didn't die, someone else did. And what you see on that note is Honore telling Tosaki to pay the bomber. And you think that this is going to be like the previous episode in which he paid everybody that was involved with Chris's case. So you think this is just going to be okay, pay him and we'll move on. However, when you find him dead later, you realize that Honoré is not as soft or as removed from his former lifestyle as you'd want to think or as that we've been led to think. He is a bit soft compared to his father. 
definitely. And he was definitely too soft on his son. But he's not as soft as we think he is. There, he still knows the Vachon way of doing things. And failure is not paid in cash. Failure is paid in a bullet. And the reason that 5-0 finds out that Macros is the bomber is because he uses a particular European explosive, I think. There's something of Europe connecting him. And so they focus on European bombers, which leads them to Macros and, and Macros's corpse. So it's understood that after this failure, they recognize the payment for a Vachon failure. That Honoré is not dumb. He's probably going to go outside of the islands because Macros was the best on the island. They're going to go outside the islands to find somebody. So they need to widen their hitman research and they bring Interpol in on this to help them with that. And what's interesting is, is that when we see the scenes of the hitman research, it's a little bit both impressive and unnerving how good Steve is at thinking like a hitman thinking about how he would follow his movements, thinking about, okay, if Honoré hired a bomber, this is what to look for in my car, thinking about if Honoré hired a sharpshooter, well, there's a lot of windows in the building across the street, let's keep an eye on those and who's renting those rooms. You have to wonder if perhaps McGarrett didn't choose to take a law enforcement career if he would have been on the other side of things. He's just that good at thinking of these things. And he is right. Honoré does go outside of the islands to find his next hitman because he's not going to give up. And he goes to his father for this. Now, he's under surveillance, so he doesn't answer the phone when it rings. Marguerite does. And, of course, he runs the water so no one can hear his and Marguerite's conversation about tell Dominic that I'll call him back later. And he sends Tasaki with the note to meet him at three. And what do they do? It's a lovely day, father. Let's take a walk on the beach. So the waves cover up their conversation. Seeing all of that, the extent that Honoré goes to to keep radio silence because he knows that he's being surveilled, Honoré is smart. Dominic is smarter. Let's get in touch with Philidor. And he still owes me a favor from, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago. Now we call this one in. Yes, but the problem is getting the message to him. When do Marguerite and the girls go to church next? Tomorrow in the morning. Write to Philidor. Give Marguerite the letter. She'll give it to the sexton to mail for He'll be only too glad to do a service for Madame Bichon. Father, I don't like to bring Marguerite into the work. Tell Philidor to send his answer to the church. Sexton will give it to Marguerite. She'll bring it to you in her prayer book. I don't think McGarrett will stop your wife on her way home from church. But the church, Father? It's a sacred place. There is nothing more sacred than killing McGarrett. Why Honoré is not going to church with them, I don't know, but he probably should. So this carrier pigeoning connects Honoré with Philidor, who hooks him up with a dude named Haywood. And it's a great bit of extremes that they go to to arrange this meeting because of the surveillance. So Haywood flies in has a cab drop him off at a phone booth where Tosaki can see him from his car. Haywood calls the number, which rings Tosaki's car phone. He asks if it's a ho specific hotel. Tosaki says, no, it's an Acme janitor service. Sorry, wrong number. They've established that this is the person that they're picking up. Tosaki picks him up and takes him to the rendezvous point. Now to get Honoré there because 
he is under surveillance, so no matter where he goes, someone is following him and listening. He's out on his little beach deck, apparently reading. A helicopter comes by. Now, I would imagine this wasn't entirely unusual because I think helicopter tours have been happening in the islands for quite a while. We all know that TC made a living doing it on Magnum P.I. So surveillance is a little bit on alert, but not really. And there's not a whole lot they can do about it because of the distance that they're keeping. So when the helicopter gets close, Honoré makes a run for it and jumps in the helicopter on the beach and they take off and surveillance can't follow them. And the helicopter takes Honoré to the rendezvous point where he and Haywood verify each other's identities and then make a deal. Hayward says that he needs two weeks to do this. And Honoré says, no, I want it done now. And he goes, that's not how this works. And explains to him that in two weeks, he is going to basically stalk McGarrett, establish his routine, find out the precautions he is taking because he knows that there's a hitman after him and develop the plan in his head. So he knows exactly how he's going to take him out successfully. As smart as Honoré is, he is impatient. He wants this done. He wants this taken care of. And so he, he first says a week, and Hayward says, if you can do it in a week, then do it. There's a flight leaving at 5 o'clock, and I can be on it. I don't have to take this job. They compromise with 10 days and an extra $10,000. And then Hayward says, well, it was nice to meet you, explaining he works alone. This is the only time they're going to be meeting he will know the job is done in 10 days time when he sees McGarrett's death on the news. And after that point, he can uh, wire the money to Hayward's Swiss bank account. And Honoré makes the observation that he's a pretty good businessman. So it's kind of funny that he would kill for a living. And Hayward says something to the effect of you meet more interesting people. I can't deny that. But Honoré also says, well, how do you know I'm going to pay you? As soon as you hear McGarrett's dead, you phone the banker and tell him to deposit $35,000 to my account in Geneva. And then I'll phone Switzerland to see if it's been done. If it hasn't, my next job's for free. You. You're a very talented man, Mr. Hayward, but you're new in Hawaii. You weren't around when my life was threatened for the first time. I remember that man well. If you weren't pressed for time, might show you where he's buried. Honoré's counter to this shows just how not soft he is. It's easy for us to forget that he came up in this business. His hands are not clean. As hard as he had tried to go into a legitimate business, and yes, we see him doing vengeance, but lots of people do vengeance, but his hands are not clean, and he was not always so soft. I just love his response to Hayward's threats. And I think it works because they're both on the level. And I, they're not going to cheat each other. You can tell they're not going to cheat each other. Hayward's going to do the job. Honoré is going to pay him. But it's still just, it's a great back and forth. You normally don't get this much character depth with the villain of the week. Or in this case, the villain of three weeks. Because there simply isn't time. But we have seen many facets of Honoré Vichon in these two episodes. And I'm so glad they allowed that to happen, that he was not going to be a cardboard cutout, that you understand his motivations, that you understand where he came from, you understand that he is a complex human being. It really adds so much to these episodes. So the fuse is lit, and 5 is tipped off that 
Honoré has found his hitman because suddenly he's open for business again. He's talking on the phone. He's carrying on like he doesn't have a care in the world. So they know he's found his hitman. They just don't know who it is yet. And 5-0 realizes, okay, so the hitman is on his tail. What would this hitman be doing? And we see what this hitman is doing. We see what Hayward is doing. He's following Steve. He's establishing his routine. We see him go and rent a room across the street. That will give him a perfect line of sight into Steve's office. And what's great is we see Steve going through his routine and then they will pan over and there's Hayward watching him. So Steve is going through all of this and we see him taking certain precautions. He's being picked up with cop cars that have been gone over by Che to make sure there's no explosives. He's always with somebody when he's at work. We see all of these precautions and we see the threat right there who also sees these precautions. It's a great bit of stalking. It really is. And 5-0 knows this when they realize what's going on, that he's had this time to establish Steve's routine. They know he's closing in. And so for them to pull this off, they need to use this hitman to lead them to Honoré Vachon. Allow me now to lead you to this guest cast. Not very many new faces, but we're going to go through them anyway. As we know, Honoré Vachon was played by Harold Gould. This is his second of four episodes. Our hitman, Dylan Hayward, is played by Don Knight. This is his second of six episodes. We also saw him in The Ways of Love. Dominic Vachon was played by Luther Adler. This is his second of four episodes. Tasaki was played by Kwon Hai Lim. This is his eighth, if I read my handwriting correctly, eighth of 25 episodes. Marguerite was played by Elizabeth Cole. This is her second of two episodes. Phyllis was played by Aletha Aguilar. This is her fourth of five episodes. The building manager was played by Robert Costa. This is his eighth of 12 episodes. Our bomb squad man was played by Joe Mares. This is his only credit. The tow truck driver was played by Chuck Couch. This is his fifth of 17 episodes. The judge was played by our friend Yankee Chang. This is his ninth of 17 episodes. And in an uncredited role, Peter Macros was played by Nick Nicholas. This is his third of five episodes. We also saw him in In a Time to Die and A Matter of Mutual Concern. The I know that you know that I know that you know aspect of this case plays out with 5-0 getting a beat on who their hitman is. They find out that it's Dylan Hayward. Thank you, Interpol, for your intel. They find out that he rented a room across the street, so they know where he is and they know what he's going to do. So they end up watching him while he's watching Steve's evening office routine and they keep it consistent. They do that for a reason because they don't want to change anything up because they don't want to tip the hitman off into knowing that they know. So they watch him. And it's like four nights before the next day they see him arrive at his room half an hour early, carrying a couple of packages. This is it. And they put their plan in action. And that plan is they get all set up for their evening routine. Hayward gets all set up for murder. Just as he's about to get his sights on Steve, there's a knock on the door. And it's from a woman who says she's from an escort service. Asking if he's the gentleman who called her, 
even if it was a wrong number, would he still appreciate her services? And he is tempted, but he says, you know, another night. Goes back to his weapon, gets Stephen his sights, and fires. Well, in the time that he was distracted, they were able to put a mannequin up that had Steve's hair, and the mannequin ended up taking that shot. So Hayward is incredibly surprised when 5-0 bursts through the door, including McGarrett. And he realizes he was set up, that he shot a dummy, that the woman at the door was a policewoman, and he tries to make a deal. The deal ends up being, because he wants a lighter sentence, but the deal he actually gets is he will testify against Honoré, because the jury will believe it if it comes out of his mouth. In exchange, Steve will ensure he gets put into a federal prison under an assumed name on the mainland because if he's put into prison in Oahu, then the Vashans will get him because there's only one payment for failure. And he takes that deal. And we see in the final minutes of the episode, Honoré's trial, Hayward testifies against him. Honoré is convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison. And before he is led away, his father hugs him and says, my turn. And we will see his turn in the next episode. My turn. Father. Honore. Marguerite, the girls. The family is well and they miss you. Has there been any development? I found the man. How much can you tell me? His name is Sullivan. He'll be released next Wednesday. He has the anger already. Good. But he's going to need the persuasion we talked about. Pasaki will bring him to me. Is it safe? At the house now? The Garrett's court order has expired. He's been forced to remove the wiretaps. It's safe. Tell me this, uh, Sullivan. What kind of man is he? As Chris used to say, a born loser. Episode 11, V for Vashon, the Patriarch. Air date, November 28th, 1972. Directed by Charles S. Dubin. This is his eighth of 24 episodes. And written by Alvin Sipinsley. This is his fifth of 12 episodes. We review Chris Vashon's death and Honore Vashon's poor decisions that led to his incarceration. Now it's Dominic Vashon's turn. Dominic visits his son in prison. Honoré has found a man named Sullivan who has the anger, but he'll need the persuasion. Dominic can do that. However, when Sullivan meets with Dominic, even the money doesn't convince Sullivan to kill Steve McGarrett. McGarrett sent him up several times for pushing, and he wouldn't mind seeing Steve dead, but he's not the man to do it. As he leaves, Dominic informs Sullivan that there are 15 grams of heroin in his apartment, put there yesterday by McGarrett so he could bust him and send him to prison for a very long time. He tells Sullivan to go search his apartment, and Sullivan leaves to do just that. No worries, though. Tasaki made sure he'll find it. Danny brings in a reimbursement order for $50 because an informant came up with some interesting real estate info. Dominic Vishon is smashing his empire for cash, including selling his house. Danny thinks he's retiring. Steve thinks he's looking for vengeance. He's up to something, but Steve isn't sure what. Sullivan informs Dominic that two narcs busted into his apartment and went straight to the stash. Dominic tells him that McGarrett won't rest until he nails him. As long as Dominic has a good plan and an escape for him, Sullivan is in. Steve and a well-known attorney named Harvey Drew leave a banquet at the same time, Steve having received a message that he's needed at the office, and Drew insisting on walking with Steve to the garage. 
as they walk from the stairs into the garage sullivan ambushes them from the elevator steve pushes drew to the ground and returns fire sullivan is hit and falls back the elevator he's in taking him to another floor steve rushes up to the floor and pushes through the crowd of the elevator sullivan is dead and the gun is missing Tosaki informs Dominic that McGarrett killed Sullivan, an unarmed man whose missing gun was loaded with blanks anyway, and that Tosaki's cousin loudly remarked about the lack of that gun. Dominic is in Tosaki's cousin's debt. It's on to phase two. Doc informs Steve that Sullivan died of a severed abdominal aorta, an injury that could have caused a quick death before the elevator reached the floor. State's attorney John Manicote tells Steve that it looks like a shitty situation because they can't find the gun nor the shots Sullivan fired. Drew can't testify that he saw Sullivan holding a gun, but he can say that he heard more than two shots. Dominic meets with Mrs. Sullivan. She said that her drug pusher husband is dead and that McGarrett tried to put him in jail again. Dominic offers her $5,000 to go to the editorial board of the paper and tell them exactly what he tells her to say, which she does. The papers say that Steve had it in for Sullivan going so far as to staging a raid, which Steve rightly claims is bullshit. Steve left the banquet just then because he received a message saying that Ben needed him. Mrs. Sullivan said that her husband was just there to talk to Steve, but it was pretty coincidental that Sullivan knew exactly what level his car was on in the garage. Without any hard evidence, there's only Harvey Drew's word on Steve's behalf. Thankfully for Steve, Drew is the most stand-up attorney in Oahu. People are already talking about him running for office. Good thing, because Manicote has no choice but to file second-degree murder charges against Steve. Steve insists that he does. If there's any hint of a whitewash, then everything that Steve has stood for is a lie. At Steve's trial, Chin and Danny both testify to the lack of evidence. Harvey Drew testifies that he heard more than Steve's two shots, but upon cross-examination, admits that they could have been a car backfiring. The jury's verdict? They find Steve guilty of second-degree murder. So as I said before, this is the only episode where we see a previously on, and it covers the first two episodes. So we see what led to Chris's death and which caused Honoré to take vengeance, and we see Honoré's poor decision-making skills that led him to incarceration. So now it's Dominic's turn. And Dominic's turn involves a frame, and we know how much I love a good frame job. And this is a very, very good frame job. Just the planning is chef's kiss, meticulous, immaculate, wonderful. 10 out of 10 stars, truly. And what I love about it is that it starts off with Dominic visiting Honoré in prison. And this is really the only time we see Honoré in this episode. And that Honoré has been working behind the scenes to find what we later learn is a patsy. He finds a guy named Sullivan who's angry at McGarrett because McGarrett keeps busting him for pushing and sending him to jail. One would think the solution to this would be to stop pushing, but apparently not. Anyway, Honoré does tell his father that he will need some persuasion. And Dominic can arrange the persuasion. What I love about this, though, is that they are basically vaguely talking about what at first looks like a murder-for-hire situation in prison, just casually during visiting hours. I mean, I guess you can do that if you're a Bashan, right? So it turns out that Sullivan is easily manipulated. Dominic is a master manipulator to begin with, but Sullivan's really easy to play. Sullivan does not want to do the murder. 
He's mad when Minoria are dead. He doesn't want to be the person to do it. He just got out of jail. He's trying to stay out of jail. And then Dominic tells him, well, check your house because I happen to know that McGarrett planted 15 grams of heroin in there and that the narcs are going to come raid it and they're going to send you back to jail. And Sullivan can't believe that this is happening, but he goes, he checks it out, finds the stash. The narcs bust in, but can't find the stash. They go directly to where it was supposed to be, but he's obviously gotten rid of it. And so he fully believes Dominic now that the dope that Tosaki planted, McGarrett actually planted, and McGarrett's in for him. Now, here's what I love about this. By all appearances, it looks like Sullivan is just a low-level street pusher. It's just that he pushes to high school kids. And that's what got caught in Steve's craw and why he tried to stop his parole. Fine. But I can't imagine Steve McGarrett, who tangles with Wofat on a regular basis, would bother having a vendetta against this pusher. He's going to keep his eye out on him and nail him again because apparently this dude does not learn. And he'll bust him again eventually, but he's in no hurry. This is going to happen. This is just an inevitability. But Sullivan is easily manipulated, and so he goes along with this ride with Dominic assuring him that he has a very good murder plan and a plan for Sullivan to escape. He fails to mention that his escape will be into the afterlife, but I figure if Sullivan knew that, he probably wouldn't go along with this. The attempted murder happens in a garage at a hotel where there's this banquet being held, and Steve ends up leaving because he gets a message from his office, supposedly, that Ben needs help. And he is joined by lawyer Harvey Matheson Drew. Now, we have seen Drew before. Vashon retained him for Chris's trial. He's the best. He's also unimpeachable. They make him remark about how he is so squeaky clean that they are looking at him running for Senate. For U.S. Senate, not just state Senate. So we have seen him before, and he re reappears now, insisting on walking to the garage with Steve because he's going that way anyway. And once they get into the garage, Sullivan, who knows what floor his car is on, starts firing at him from the elevator. Steve hears the shots, pushes Harvey Drew down, turns, and returns fire. He ends up hitting Sullivan in the gut, but the doors close before Steve can get over there. And Gilavir goes to the next floor, door opens. And there is a dead guy in the elevator and this lady like loses her shit. I would have been like, no, thank you. I'm going to take the next one. By the time Steve gets up there and pushes through this crowd, there's a security guard up there that is doing absolutely shit all to corral this crowd. He's in there, checks Sullivan. Sullivan's dead, but he's looking for the gun and he can't find the gun. And that's kind of important because otherwise it looks like Steve has shot an unarmed man, which someone is incredibly vocal about in this crowd. We'll just never mind the fact that it happens to be Tosaki's cousin. So the first part of this frame is in play. Well, how did it go? Exactly as planned. Sullivan's weapon. Where, 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 where is it? He was found to be unarmed. We've got him. A cousin of mine was present, and he wondered about Sullivan not having a gun. Loudly? He was heard. A nice touch, Tosaki. I'm in your cousin's debt. Now we move on. Tomorrow you'll bring Mrs. Sullivan to see me. Yes, Mr. Vachon. He fired three shots. And missed. It's hard not to, when you're shooting blanks. They won't find any gun. They won't find any slugs. Just think of it, Tasaki. McGarrett has murdered an unarmed man.
So we're in a very good position here for the start of this because it's turning up the heat on Steve. The heat gets turned up further when Dominic talks to Mrs. Sullivan, who is very sad that her pusher husband, who could not learn his lesson about pushing and went to jail three times for it, comes in and he gives her $5,000 to go to the newspaper editorial board and give her side of the story, which is pretty much what Dominic tells her to stay. And she's fine with that because she believes that the cops were unfairly targeting her husband, who has been busted at this point prior to this three times. I just can't get over this fact that everybody's kind of ignoring that the dude was busted three times. He wasn't learning and his wife was apparently fine with it, I guess. I don't know. But I just can't get over that part. Anyway, this really turns up the heat on McGarrett because, of course, the papers are always looking for a reason to trash talk the man. So Steve meets with Doc first about Sullivan's autopsy because he finds it hard to believe that the man died so quickly. And Doc tells him, well, he had a severed abdominal aorta, which stopped the blood flow to his heart. He could have been dead before he hit the floor. I don't think he would be dead that fast, but I'm not a doctor, so. But he still could have bled out internally very rapidly and may have been dead or almost dead by the time he got to that floor. And Doc says he must have been crouched when you fired at him. And he was, he was crouching down because Steve says he was trying to hit his arm and his leg. Here's the thing. There was no reason for him to try to hit his arm and his legs. Cops, first of all, are taught to go for center mass. They're taught to shoot to kill. That's how it is. Now we have seen in a previous episode in Journey Out of Limbo, when Ben ends up killing a suspect in a shootout, he was actively trying not to because that suspect had valuable information. So he was trying to take him alive. He was shooting for his leg, never mind that you can die from a shot to the leg, excuse my femoral artery, but he was attempting to take him alive, and the guy crouched down and he ended up hitting him and killing him. That is kind of understandable, even though cops aren't trained for that, but in this case, there was no reason for Steve not to be shooting to kill. He was ambushed in a garage. There's no reason why he wouldn't be returning fire in kind, but I think we have to point that out for narrative purposes. That he not only killed an apparently unarmed man, but Steve's version of the story, he wasn't even trying to kill him. It was an incident that happened during the shootout. It was an unfortunate sequence of events. So then Steve goes to meet with John Manicote, and Manicote lays out the evidence. They don't have the bullets that Sullivan fired. And Steve says they could have ricocheted all over that garage. They could have gone into somebody's car. It's not out of the norm that they wouldn't be able to find them. He, they can't find the gun, which is the biggest thing. And Harvey Drew can't testify to seeing Sullivan holding a gun, but he can testify to the fact that he heard shots. We know that Steve fired at least two shots because they removed two shots from Sullivan's torso. Harvey Drew can say he heard more than two shots. John Manico's hands are tied. Given the press given the evidence and circumstances, he has to file charges and it's going to be second degree murder charges. And Steve insists on this. He's fine with this. You have to go after an indictment. What else can I do, Steve? Not a thing. Do it. Steve. John, you took an oath. You realize the indictment I'm going to have to ask for? Yeah. Murder too. Yeah, that's right. Second degree murder. Go after it, John. I want you to. If there's even a hint of a whitewash, all that I've ever stood for as a cop will be wiped out. No, no, I want this trial. 
I need it. Steve, the evidence is formidable. So is truth. John, don't worry about it. I'm prepared to rely on due process. And you have to give that to Steve. You have to give it to him. In other shows, they might try to weasel a little bit. He goes and he stands right up and says, no, this is what I stand for. I believe in the justice system. I'm going to do this. Because even though Harvey Drew is going to be his ace, his really his only card because there's no forensic evidence, he's an unimpeachable witness. And Steve believes in the justice system. He, he believes in the truth. He believes that this is going to work in his favor. So we see the trial and we see that 5-0 is following in Steve's footsteps. They testify that they can't find the forensic evidence that they need. Both Chin and Danny do this. Harvey Drew gets up on the stand and testifies to how many shots he heard. And then during cross-examination, Manicote asks, could it have been car backfiring? And Drew has to admit that, yeah, it's possible that it could have been. And as a result, Steve is found guilty. He's found guilty of second-degree murder. He immediately appeals and is out on bail. Gets released on bail. So he tells Manicote, yeah, there's no evidence of a whitewash. Because it's well known that Steve and Manicote are friends. And Manicote pulled no punches. He did a perfect prosecutor play of bringing in the doubt of could have been car backfiring. I mean, excellent move. Props to him for that. And it looks very much so like Dominic Vachon has won. And he feels that he has won. We get that when Steve goes to meet with him. I want to know why you were in court yesterday. To see justice done. And did you? To my complete satisfaction. You've been found guilty of murdering an unarmed man. You've been suspended from your job, stripped of your gun and your badge. And your right to speed through the night with blinking lights at a little boy's siren. Yes, I would say justice has been done. Your kind of justice. The frame. The knife in the back. My kind. But, but I didn't convict you. The jury of your peers did. Did I sentence you? A very respectable judge did. A close friend prosecuted you. Your own men testified against you. And an honorable man sat on the witness stand and showed you to be a liar and a murderer. He said, my son and I are enjoying this. I'm just sad my grandson doesn't know that his death has been avenged. Now, we all know, everybody knows, that Dominic Vachon is behind this. Steve knows this in his soul. For whatever reason, Steve ends up going to stay at Doc's place while he's out on bail. I don't know why. I don't think he lives in his office. I hope he doesn't live in his office. I hope it just seems he lives in his office. But he's going to go stay in Doc's place. And his out-on-bail outfit, it is a thing of beauty. I have loved this for years Check the vlog. The picture of it will be up there. It is magnificent. He is wearing a white suit with a blue, a light blue, like Aloha shirt underneath of it. He has a pink ascot and a white Panama hat. It is, oh my gosh, it is just glorious. It is glorious Steve McGarrett fashion. If Dominic Vachon has done anything for us, it is gifting us with this Steve wear. Anyway, 5-0 and John Manico meet up at Doc's house with Steve to discuss what they're doing going forward. 
And under the law, because Steve is suspended, he can ask for law enforcement to help him look for new evidence, but he can't order his staff to do things. Well, I don't even think he has to ask. Five-O is right there on board because everybody knows that Dominic Vachon could have staged this. There are two big keys that they need to figure out to figure out the frame and to help lead them to the evidence that will nail Dominic Vachon. The first one is the missing gun. The second one is Harvey Drew. So they have to find the gun and they also have to find out what Dominic Vachon has on Harvey Drew. So the first part is easy. They do an elevator experiment. I love reenactments. They try to see if it's possible for someone to have been on top of the elevator to jump down, retrieve the gun, and jump back up before the elevator made it to the floor that it opened up on. So they run an experiment to do this. The person only has about 35 seconds to do this. And they prove that not only if you have the right person can this be done, it can be done with time to spare. Steve, learning this, realizes that that time to spare might be important because for this frame to work, Sullivan has to be dead. There is no way to guarantee that Steve would have killed him in the shootout. Whoever retrieved the gun would also have to make sure that Sullivan was dead. So they have Sullivan exhumed. Doc goes over him again and finds that he's had a needle jammed into his ear in addition to being shot in the stomach. So he was dead dead. 100% 100% dead when those doors opened. 5 ends up looking for a cat burglar type person who does not mind murdering and would use alternative methods to kill. And Ben talks to one of his informants on the street who gives up the name Spider Brown. Spider Brown went from being average to flashing a lot of money, came into some possession of some shiny shoes, But he also had kind of a big mouth and he kept saying a name he shouldn't have been saying and Spider Brown disappeared after that. And the informant won't tell Ben the name because he doesn't want to disappear. But Ben has a good idea that he knows what the name is. So they have the elevator conundrum solved. The next part is finding out what Drew's secret is. What does Dominic Vachon have on Harvey Drew? And this involves them going through his financials, going through all of his office files, everything. And at first glance, he looks squeaky clean. But then they come across a name. And that name leads them to Harvey Drew's secret. And it's a doozy. And after that, Dominic Vachon has only one play left. And it's shocking. You know what else is shocking? Well, not this guest cast. We know just how good they are. But let's take a closer look at them anyway. Dominic Vachon was played by Luther Adler. This is his third of four episodes. Honoré Vachon was played by Harold Gould. This is his third of four episodes. Harvey Drew was played by John Stalker. This is his fifth of 15 episodes. Tosaki was played by Quan Hai Lim. This is his ninth of 25 episodes. Bobby Railsbeck was played by John Beatty. This is his only credit. Mrs. Sullivan was played by Patricia Herman. This is her third of 12 episodes. We also saw her in Board She Hung Herself and Air Cargo, Dial for Murder. Sullivan was played by Robert M. Luck. This is his eighth of 12 episodes. Drew's secretary was played by Sandy Colonel. This is her only credit. 
The security guard was played by Robert Harker. This is his fourth of nine episodes. Joe Akuda was played by Lippy Espinda. This is his fifth of 11 episodes. Chuck Price was played by Bo Vandenecker. This is his eighth of 21 episodes. The hotel clerk was played by Jim Hutchison. This is his second of three episodes. We also saw him in R&R&R. Mrs. Drew was played by Wisa de Orzo. This is her second of five episodes. We also saw her in You Don't Have to Kill to Get Rich, but it helps. Berman was played by Norman Dupont. This is his fifth of ten episodes. And in an uncredited role, Tasaki's cousin was played by Walter Yoshimitsu. This is his second of three episodes. We also saw him in Death is a Company Policy. And that is B. Bravishon, the Patriarch, as a finisher for this three-parter. It is amazing. The frame job is fantastic. We get to see Dominic Bashan in his element because he is riding high and we see him being crafty and being smart and enjoying himself. Most importantly, he enjoys his work. I respect a man like that. But we see him in a position where it looks very much like he's going to win. It's going to be very difficult for Steve to get out of this one. And he kind of doesn't because he is found guilty of second degree murder. But the way 5 comes together and the way they focus their energy on those two puzzles, where the missing gun went and what Harvey Drew's secret is, the way it all comes together at the end is just fantastic. Both the secret and Dominic Vachon's last play. It's a perfect ending to this trilogy. You're going to want to give them all a watch. You did say no whitewash. I sure didn't get one, did I, John? And that is episode 56 of Bookum Dano. In her book, Booking Hawaii Five-O, Karen Rhodes calls this trilogy the magnum opus of Hawaii Five-O. And I agree. These three episodes are just absolutely fantastic. We start with the stupidly arrogant son and his daddy issues. We go with the father who is kind of caught between two worlds, seeking vengeance for his terrible son. And then we finish with the patriarch taking back control of his family and the Vishan name and defending the name more than anything else. The three Vishan men, Robert Drevis, Harold Gould, and Luther Adler, are amazing in these episodes, particularly Harold Gould, because he is portraying an incredibly complex character. And I talk about how his son resents his character growth. And then we see a further character, almost de-evolution of him going back to his roots in order to get vengeance for this son. Robert Drevis does a magnificent job portraying Chris as this cocky, arrogant little boy, because that's what he is. He's a little boy lashing out at his daddy. And then Luther Adler, magnificent as the patriarch, Dominic Vichon, because he's the ruthless head of a criminal enterprise and a criminal family. And you can't help but like him and respect him because he is very good at what he does. 
those three actors make these episodes so good. And then you put them with Jack Lord, who is now five seasons in to this character that he has really made his own, that has its own complexity and its own depth. It's just so, so good. And bonus McGarrett where you're not going to get better than that. Thank you so much for listening. You know, I always appreciate your ears. I apologize for the excess car noise. I tried to get this done before the traffic picked up. I failed miserably. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookham Dano. You can also find me at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. Be sure to check in on the Patreon because you could be getting these episodes two weeks earlier than everybody else. And if you need to know my Vashon thoughts in real time and you can't find me on the hell site formerly known as Twitter, you can find me on Blue Sky at Kiki Writes. So work out your daddy issues in therapy rather than through felonies and make your frame jobs the best they can be. Until next time. Aloha.